Chapter 6 of The Romance of Modern Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Krista Zaleski. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector McPherson. Chapter 6 Mercury, the Sparkling One. So far as we know, Mercury is the nearest planet to the Sun. The existence of a world at a less distance than Mercury was suspected, and indeed generally believed in, half a century ago. There were certain irregularities in the motion of Mercury which astronomers attributed to the action of an unseen planet. One observer boldly announced that he had seen the planet crossing in front of the Sun, and so the name of Vulcan was bestowed on the supposed world. But Vulcan was never seen again, and accordingly the great majority of astronomers believe that it was never seen. In fact, that no such planet exists. Mercury, therefore, is the nearest known planet to the Sun. Seen from the Earth, the little orb is never far from the day star. Mercury revolves round the Sun in an orbit within that of the Earth, and consequently it is never to be seen on a dark sky in the opposite part of the heavens to the Sun. In Britain, Mercury is rarely visible, so close does it keep to the orb of day. In fact, it is recorded of Copernicus, to whom we owe the true theory of the planetary motions, that although he often looked for the planet, he was never successful in seeing it. The reason of his failure is not far to seek. He lived the greater part of his life near the valley of the Vistula in Poland, where the horizon is rarely free from mists, and Mercury is never very far above the horizon. Notwithstanding the difficulty of seeing it, Mercury has been known from the earliest times. The ancient Greeks were well acquainted with it, and it was sometimes known to them as the Sparkling One. This name was given to it because it does not, like the other planets which rise high in the heavens, shine with a steady light. As we always see it through the more or less misty air about the horizon, it twinkles and sparkles in a beautiful manner hence the name which the ancient Greeks so poetically conferred on the little planet. As Mercury, owing to its proximity to the sun, is difficult to observe with the unaided eye, it is also difficult to observe with the telescope. The opportunities of favorable observation are few, so closely does it follow the sun. The first thing which impresses the telescopic observer of Mercury is that the planet exhibits phases similar to those of the moon. As the Earth's path encloses the orbits of both Mercury and Venus, we never see these planets fully illuminated. To be fully illuminated, a body must be in the opposite quarter of the heavens from the Sun, like the Moon at the full phase. Sometimes, however, Mercury is at the opposite side of the Sun from our planet. That is to say, we have Mercury, the Sun, and the Earth all in a straight line, with the Sun between the Earth and Mercury. The planet is then at its farthest from the Earth, but could we observe it, we should see it with a fully illuminated disk. In fact, we should have a full Mercury. We do not see the planet at these superior conjunctions, as such occurrences are called, for Mercury is then lost in the glare of the Sun and quite invisible to the terrestrial observer. After a time, however, the planet, in its journey round the orb of day, reappears from the solar glare as an evening star. As it comes nearer and nearer to the Earth, and as its disk becomes apparently larger, the illuminated portion decreases until we have only half Mercury, then a crescent Mercury, until, when the planet is at its nearest, 
the thin crescent disappears altogether and we soon have new Mercury. Like our satellite at new moon, Mercury becomes invisible. Technically, it is said to be at inferior conjunction, because the Earth, Mercury, and the Sun are in a straight line, with Mercury in the center, the result being that the bright side of the planet is turned towards the Sun and away from the Earth. Then, on its journey round the Sun, Mercury again appears as morning star. Only a little crescent is at first visible in the telescope, but gradually the illuminated portion becomes greater as the planet recedes from the Earth and the apparent diameter decreases. Again we have half Mercury, and again the planet disappears in the rays of the Sun to reappear as an evening star. Thus we are placed at a disadvantage in regard to the observation of Mercury, because the planet revolves around the central orb within the orbit of the Earth. When Mercury is nearest to us it is invisible. When it is fully illuminated it is also invisible. We only see it bit by bit, as it were, at its various phases. Above all, it is so near the sun that astronomers are never able to observe it on a dark background, and it is so low in the heavens that it is always seen through a stratum of thick air. For many years, nothing was known of the surface of Mercury. At the beginning of the 19th century, however, a series of observations were made by Schroeder, an able German astronomer of the day. Schroeder was anxious to ascertain the period of Mercury's rotation on its axis, the length of the planet's day. Schroeder detected certain markings, and from the motions of those, he concluded that the rotation of Mercury was performed in about 24 hours, similar to our own terrestrial day. For many years, this estimate was generally accepted, although owing to the great difficulty of observing the planet, it was not implicitly relied on. Some distinguished astronomers, however, were not content with a mere unconfirmed estimate of the length of Mercury's day. Among these was Schiaparelli of Milan, who, in 1882, commenced a prolonged series of observations of the planet for the purpose of determining the rotation period. Previous observers had been handicapped by the fact that Mercury, when visible as an evening or morning star, is to be seen for only a short period. Therefore, prolonged observations of the planet are impossible under such conditions. Schiaparelli struck out a new line. Instead of observing Mercury at the usual time, he followed it by day. Considering that the disadvantage of observing the planet in the daytime was more than compensated by the advantage of prolonged observation. He followed the planet for hours at a time, and at last, after seven years' observations, he announced his discoveries. They were as startling as they were unexpected. He found that so far from the planet rotating on its axis in 24 hours, the markings visible remained fixed in position, and that the planet performs only one rotation on its axis during its revolution round the Sun. Instead of rotating in 24 hours, as the Earth does, it rotates in 88 of our terrestrial days. Controversy raged for some years among astronomers as to the accuracy of this result, but now the truth of Schiaparelli's discovery is generally accepted. Let us try to imagine what sort of a world Mercury must be. Rotating on its axis only once during its journey round the orb of day, it turns the same face to the Sun, just as the Moon does to Earth. One face of the planet is bathed in perpetual sunshine, the other is shrouded in everlasting night. One side is baked with heat, the other is frozen with cold. 
No wonder that the surface, as the observations of Professor Lowell indicate, is cracked in all directions. The surface of Mercury, he says, is colorless, a geography in black and white. However, there is a small zone on the planet's surface on which the sun does not rise and set. Owing to the irregular motion of the planet in its path, its varying velocity due to the eccentricity of its orbit, and its uniform motion on its axis, this is clearly explained by Mr. Gore in the following words. This difference in the regularity of the two motions will of course give rise to a libration, which will have the effect of bringing a portion of the dark side of Mercury periodically into the sunlight, and will thus diminish the area of the planet's surface which is shrouded in perpetual night. About three-eighths of the total surface will forever remain in darkness, three-eighths in perpetual sunshine, while the remaining one-fourth will have alternately day and night. In fact, an inhabitant living near the mean bounding line and on the planet's equator would have 44 days of sunshine and 44 days of night and twilight. A little farther in on the dark side there would be perpetual twilight, and farther still eternal night would reign. Owing to the low altitude attained by the sun near the bounding line, its intense heat and light would of course be much mitigated, so that probably this region of the planet's surface may be comparable with the temperate zones of Earth. Little is known of the markings of Mercury. The few observations which astronomers possess seem to indicate that the surface is rugged and mountainous, somewhat similar to that of the Moon. As to whether there is an appreciable atmospheric envelope surrounding Mercury, opinion is divided, some holding that the globe of Mercury is, like that of our satellite, airless, others believing that there is an atmosphere surrounding the little planet. The general opinion of astronomers is that under such conditions as exist on Mercury, life as we know it is impossible. If there are inhabitants of Mercury, they must, from the dark side of their world, obtain magnificent views of the outer universe. Venus and the Earth will shine with a glorious radiance fully illuminated. The Earth and Moon seen from Mercury form a fine double star. The Earth will appear a magnificent object, attended by a little star of the third magnitude. The brightest object in the evening skies of Mercury will be Venus, as the little planet has no satellite circling round it, illuminating its dark hemisphere. End of chapter 6